I want to tell you about Karen Arluck. She's a counsellor in private practice in New York, and she uh, makes some suggestions for people who want to help someone change but don't seem to be having very much success. She says most people refuse to change because they don't want to change for any number of reasons. The other person wants them to. It can be frustrating to be around people who are doing hurtful, self-destructive, or otherwise unpleasant things. However, often a person's energy is better focused on what is actually within their control to change. In other words, if you're trying to get someone to change and uh, you're struggling with that because they don't want to change, Karen, this counselor's advice is, don't bother trying. Just get used to it. <laughs> a bit later, she says, People refuse to change because either they don't want to change, they don't have to change, they don't know how to change, or they don't see anything to change. Now, it's easy for us to look at other people and see all of the changes we might like to make. But uh, what about ourselves? Let's not forget that we all refuse to change because we don't want to or we don't feel we need to. But throughout history since the fall, God's consistent message to everyone who has ever lived has been, you need to change. And the majority of people's consistent response to that has been, I don't want to change. I don't think I need to change. And people even persuade themselves that God hasn't really said that they need to change anyway. This is quite common in churches today. You hear uh, things like, come as you are, God's love is unconditional, which is true but it's half of the truth because it misses out the message to change. And the biblical word for change is repentance. And I'll talk about what that means in practice a bit more later. Now, uh, you don't often see sermon titles like repent or perish today, except maybe in one type of church that we can all imagine that's a bit narrow and a bit fire and brimstone and a bit out to spoil your fun. But we do want to teach and understand everything that God says to us, not just the easy bits. And we cannot escape the fact that God repeatedly says throughout his word, change or be destroyed, repent or perish. Think of Pharaoh refusing to let the Israelites go, and he was destroyed in the Red Sea. Think of Proverbs 29, verse 1, which says, if you get more stubborn every time you're corrected, one day you'll be crushed and never recover. That's the Good News Bible, <laughs> just to show you that it's in there even. That's part of the good news. Um, in our NIV, it says, whoever remains stiff-necked, in other words, just keeping focusing ahead, even though God is trying to push us in a different direction, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Change or be destroyed. Think of Israel and Judah being wiped out by Assyria and Babylon because they didn't repent, and I'll come back to them in a bit. So the big question I'll keep returning to throughout this sermon is, are you ready to repent? If God says to you tonight in your heart, you need to repent, are you really ready to do that? Are you ready to change? Let's turn to our reading. You could split the reading in half. The first half is this these two stories, two true stories about two tragedies that happened to people. And then the second half, verses 6 to 9, is this parable about a fig tree. And both halves teach the same thing, but in slightly different ways. 
So we're going to look at the first half, first of all, the two tragedies. Let me read the first six verses of our reading, first five verses. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Bit cryptic, but basically it looks as though some people from Galilee in the north had traveled down to Jerusalem in the south to offer sacrifices. It was a pilgrimage. Pilate, the Roman governor, um, had sent in some Roman soldiers, killed them, and presumably dumped the bodies on the altar or just thrown the blood on the altar. So it was an intentional act by Pilate to desecrate the Jewish temple, and quite common for him. He was a brutal ruler. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. So the point I want us to take from these two stories is this. Suffering shows us that God is to be feared. Let me explain why. First, uh, Jesus teaches us what suffering does not show us. Verse 2, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners because they suffered? I tell you, no. So first of all, Jesus wants us to know that people do not suffer specifically, necessarily, because they're worse people. We all know that good people suffer and bad people get away with it, don't they? That's just life. And uh, so Jesus is saying, that's how it is. Good people suffer and bad people don't. Just because somebody suffers, they're not necessarily worse than anybody else. And uh, we could turn that around and say, okay, well, some people say good people suffer, therefore God cannot exist, because why would he let good people suffer? And uh, Jesus clearly thought God existed because he was God. And he is saying, no, that's not how it works. So we might just have to ask ourselves more questions about how God works in his creation. So Jesus shows us what suffering does not teach us. It doesn't teach us about how sinful a person is. But then he shows us what suffering does teach us. Now, This uh, passage doesn't tell us everything we want to know about suffering. It doesn't even begin to explain suffering. But it does say this, verse 3, Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And the NIV misses out a word, which is there in the original Greek. I'm not sure why, but the word is uh, in the same way or similarly. Unless you repent, you will all likewise in the same way Similarly, you will all likewise perish. That's how the ESV puts it. In other words, tragedies are a picture of the sort of perishing that we will all do if we don't repent. In the same way, you will perish. And therefore, we should be afraid of God. Because if, we haven't, if we're not afraid of God, we haven't taken seriously the suffering in the world around us And how Jesus says, that points forward to the kind of suffering you will all experience unless you repent. Suffering teaches us that God is to be feared. Now, a thousand years ago, 
They had no problem at all believing that God was to be feared. That was just common knowledge. But today people can't stand the idea, and it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Quite a few people are writing about something called victimhood culture at the moment, and I think this goes a long way towards explaining why this is the case. Let me explain it by comparing three types of culture. First of all, honor-shame culture. I've got a gun there because this is ancient Wild West. In an honor-shame culture, if somebody upset you, you would probably challenge them to a duel to restore your honor. If you won the duel, you'd have restored your honor. If you didn't, you'd have suffered what you deserved because you were dishonorable anyway. <laughs> so you'd sort it out yourself in a one-to-one -one confrontation. So people in an honor-shame culture have no problem with God being someone to be feared because if God's honor is damaged, they would expect him to confront that in a duel kind of arrangement. And you would fear that because God is powerful. Dignity culture. This is like European culture 100 years ago. In this culture, if somebody upset you, you'd rely on the law to sort it out, if it was a legal issue. Or if it was a personal issue, you'd probably try to restore the relationship with the other person. Or you'd just ignore it, because that's more dignified than retaliating. And there's still quite a lot of this in the UK today, isn't there? We, we would tend to turn, turn a blind eye or try and restore a relationship. That's dignity culture. So if God was wronged in that culture, People would expect him to use the law to bring justice, and sure enough, we see that in the Bible too. And of course, because he's an all-powerful, all-seeing judge, people would have no problem with the idea that God is to be feared because we all know our secrets. But here's victimhood culture. You've got a picture of a phone there. If somebody upsets you, you bring that to public attention to gain sympathy maybe posting it on social media. And you attempt to get lots of people on your side by showing how you've been victimized, you've been marginalized, and you've been mistreated. And then you would use that following to shame and dominate and marginalize the person who upset you. But what if God has been wronged? He can't be a victim because he's in control. He's in charge. And so if that's the case, he must be a tyrant, and we are the victims. That's the only other way it can be. And so you can see why in our culture, when we say we are to fear God, then the uh, people immediately say, well, he must be a tyrant then. And you can see why this has led to books being published with titles like God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. That's exactly uh, victimhood culture. God is not great because he's in charge and I'm a victim, so that's not great. Now, I hope you can see that as I compared those three different types of culture, victimhood is not pretty. There's nothing enlightened or beautiful about victimhood culture. And it actually, in some ways, I'm sorry to say, makes us look a bit like spoiled children who refuse to take responsibility for ourselves and can't take any criticism. So... It is time for us, and you know, maybe I'm preaching to the converted, I know that, but it's time for us as a nation, us as a culture, to take responsibility for our actions and accept that the suffering in this world is due to our rebellion against God. We're not the victims, we are the perpetrators. And unless we repent, we will perish. So, are we ready to repent in this room?
Let's look at the second half of the reading. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me read verses 6 to 9. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And the first point I want to make here, I want to just make two points about this parable, is that God is to be feared by Christians. And I say this because Jesus' parable about the vineyard has a really rich Old Testament background to it of similar messages to the people of Israel. That's God's people. Let me give you a, a couple of examples before applying it to our lives today. Remember that Israel in the Old Testament is much the same as the church in the New Testament. They were God's chosen people. The church today is God's chosen people. And yet Israel of the Old Testament heard the word repent, and the church today hears the same word, repent. We'll come to that in a second. Listen to these two examples, and listen to their similarities between uh, what they're saying and what Jesus is saying in his parable. The first is Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 6. Here we go. I'll put it on the screen. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither prunes nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Can you see the similarities? It's almost the same parable, isn't it? Uh, fruit in the Bible is a common metaphor, so uh, fruit of repentance is the, kind of, uh, it's the kind of actions you would get from somebody who has repented towards God. Somebody who has said, God, um, I know I'm in the wrong, I'm repenting, I'm leaving that behind and I'm following you. The new life that comes out of that is the fruit of repentance. And in both Isaiah's parable and in Jesus's parable, he's looking for good fruit and there isn't any. There's only bad. Now, that prophecy of Isaiah's was fulfilled quite literally when Babylon came into Jerusalem and completely crushed it because the people didn't repent, and so they perished. Repent or perish. Those are the options. Here's one from the New Testament, but another kind of Old Testament sort of prophet, John the Baptist in Luke 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So once again, God warns the Israelites that they had to repent or perish. Those were their options. And when we read the New Testament, we tend to jump straight to application for us today. So we'd read these words of John and we think, okay, great. So John the Baptist is saying to me today, I must repent or I will perish. And that's not wrong, but we forget that John was in a long line of, of prophets who had said to Israel, repent or perish. And John the Baptist and Jesus were, were doing very much the same thing. And in fact, their words were quite literally fulfilled in AD 70, when the Romans crushed Jerusalem. The Israelite people did not repent, and so they perished. The point I want to make here is that this call to repentance was always to God's people. It wasn't just to the nations outside. And if God's people didn't repent, they perished. So we should fear God. Now let me apply that to us today, to the church. First of all, in the church today, there will be people who have never repented of their sins. And God's message to them, um, even though they are in the church, is repent or perish. It's as simple as that. There are lots of people who come to church because it's a nice community. And for lots of other reasons, Jesus says, repent or perish. But listen to this uh, said to perhaps Christians in Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, all using imagery from the book of Revelation, which we don't need to go into now. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So did you think that Christ's work was finished on the cross? It was in a sense, but could God look at us as he looked at Christ Church Sardis and say, your deeds are unfinished? He says, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Call to Christians to repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And Jesus doesn't say what he'll do when he comes like a thief, but I think we can assume it won't be good for that church whose deeds are unfinished. Now, some of us who have repented a long time ago and trusted in Christ also need to repent again. There's another letter to the churches in Revelation. Church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you, church in Ephesus. You have forsaken the love you have at fir- had at first. We often misquote this verse, don't we? We say, um, oh yeah, there's that verse in Revelation about you've, left your, you've kind of left your first love. You've um, lost your first love. That's the word we use, isn't it? Um, we've lost our first love. The Bible doesn't say we lose our first love. It says we forsake it. That's a decision. And so... If at one point we were full of love for the Lord and over time that has gone, we haven't lost it, we have forsaken it and we need to repent. Again, 
We are not victims in this story. We are the perpetrators. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, there will be consequences. I will come and remove the lampstand from its place. Again, using imagery from Revelation. There are consequences when Christians don't repent. So don't rest easy on a decision you made many years ago to follow Christ and think life will be easy from now on. Um, You've got to battle daily with the world, the flesh, and the devil, as Chris was saying this morning. And we have to repent when we, as we so frequently do, take the easy way out and forsake our first love for God. But the second thing I want to say about this parable is that God's patience gives us a chance. Let me read one verse from our reading, verse 8. This is the, uh, the guy that looks after the vineyard. He says to the owner of the vineyard, Sir, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, I think we are pretty safe to say that uh, Jesus is possibly comparing himself with this vineyard worker. He is the one who came to rescue us, and he pleads with God in our presence. The Son of God took humanity for the very purpose of standing in the presence of God and saying, effectively, give them one more chance. Give them time. And so he says, leave them alone one more year and I will provide the ideal conditions for them to bear fruit. And if they don't, then bring judgment. Remember 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, again, this is a verse that we uh, quite like to misquote in our churches today. We say, um, God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to be saved. And that's true but it's not what the verse says. Because I don't know, you know, I can't fathom God's plan and and why this verse doesn't say God doesn't want anyone to perish, so he's just reached out and saved everybody immediately. I don't know why he hasn't done that. But he has said in his word he wants everyone to come to repentance. Repent or perish. God's word has never changed. But God is patient, which means now is the opportunity God is giving each one of us and each one of our friends and neighbors to repent. And so we need to take that opportunity and we need to make sure we don't deny our friends and neighbors that opportunity. We need to be courageous and tell them that it's time to repent. So maybe this is a bit late for this question, but in practice, what is repentance? And in short, you know, you know what repentance is. It's turning your back on your old way of life and pursuing a new way of life of obedience to Christ and trust in him. But the point I want to make now is that that never comes on its own. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts, uh, there was a crowd listening to Peter preaching. And Peter uh, was really strong in his preaching. And they were like, okay, we need to do something about this. So the crowd said, Peter, what do we do? Peter replied, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it, it comes along with being baptized, uh, receiving God's forgiveness, and receiving the Holy Spirit. So what I don't want us to think, and I'm sure you don't think this, is that a repentance is, is just like changing direction slightly. You're walking through a room, and uh, God has said you need to repent. So you think, okay, I'll leave behind some parts of my life, and I'll go in a slightly different direction. It's not just changing the direction in life. It's more like walking through a room, and then God is asking for such a complete transformation that it requires you walking through the door and into a new room, a new way of life. And we're constantly kind of peeking back into the old room that we've left, wanting to be back in there. And at those times, God tells us to repent. But in the new room, that is the life that God has given us. And the door, of course, is Jesus himself. When we walk through that door, we are crucified with Christ. The judgment is paid and we're in the new life. But whether you're in the new room, tempted to go back into the old one, or whether you're still in the old room, the question is the same for all of us. Are we ready to repent? Now, remember the counselor I quoted at the beginning? She said, people refuse to change because either they don't want to change, they don't have to change, or they don't know how to change, or don't see anything to change. God says we have to change. And so how can we all make sure that after this evening, we don't go away and make excuses and carry on just as we have done before? How many sermons have you all walked out of and thought that's a really good point and then done nothing differently? <laughs> Alone, I've done it. I've done it as well. So we need to make sure we don't make excuses. What will be different for you this week or even tonight because you decided I'm ready to repent and to be changed? Let me close with a sneak peek ahead to next week, because next week we come face to face with some people who refuse to repent, and it's not good. It was the Sabbath day, the Jewish day of rest, and Jesus healed a woman who had been suffering for 18 years. Now, you know, a lot of us have suffered for shorter periods of time, some of us for longer periods of time. 18 years is a long time to suffer. Now, if we knew a person who had gone through a course of treatment over 18 years, and at the end of 18 years, they were finally free from pain and suffering, wouldn't that be an amazing day? What a wonderful thing that would be. Well, Jesus healed this lady who had been suffering 18 years instantly, and this is how the people who didn't repent responded. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed in one of those days, not on the Sabbath. So when we don't repent, the natural response, the natural outcome is self-righteousness, grumbling, a complete loss of perspective, and a complete loss of hope. Or it leads to the self-righteousness and the kind of bitterness of victimhood culture. I'm the victim. That's no way to go. In contrast, think of the disciples who heard Jesus' words and they repented and they went on to live uh, lives of self-sacrifice and filled with joy and meaning. Their lives were um, so much richer in comparison with these Pharisees who were grumbling because Jesus healed on a particular day of the week. And those apostles, of course, are now in the presence of God, enjoying 
his glory and awaiting the day when we will be united with them and with Christ forever in the new creation. Isn't that much better? So are you ready to repent? Am I ready to repent? Because it's a decision none of us will regret. It feels like a painful thing to do, but it is the best thing in the world, moving towards God in repentance and faith and receiving forgiveness and healing.